Every lady needs a hobby. A Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries podcast. I'm Mackenzie. I'm Genevieve. This week, we are reviewing the movie. <laughs> it's The time has come. The time has come. Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears. Oof. This is a big one. Um, and listeners, we do apologize for the long delay between our last episode and this one. Um, unfortunately, there was an incident very similar to the plot of the movie. I can see some parallels here where, um, much like the location of the Crypt of Tears was misplaced for millennia, the <laughs> location of the recording of our podcast episode was also misplaced. And I'm not sure that we're not cursed. Honestly, I think I think we very likely are. Um, I mean, look at what's happening in the world right now. I feel like an ancient curse unleashed that was set by Alexander the Great could explain almost everything that's happened in the year 2020, including us losing the recording of this podcast. Oh, my God. And we it's like our fault. We unleashed it. Or no. I don't it's know just, if I'm going to responsibility, but somebody did. <laughs> Oof. Well, unfortunately, without Miss Fisher's aid... We were unable to locate the original recording, and so we are now re-recording it. And those jokes that we made on the original recording are just lost to the sands of time. But, you know, maybe someday they'll be uncovered and we'll win some kind of podcast award for them because it's probably just like an incredibly good episode. I'm sure. I have no doubt that it was our best episode ever. And now it's just lost forever. Lost forever. You know, I read this book once called The Most Wonderful Doll in the World, where a girl loses her doll and it's lost all winter long. And she makes up all these stories about how great the doll was. And then she finds the doll and it wasn't that great. So <laughs> that it also applies to our podcast. And it's a good thing that we're recording it because it's going to be better. You know, that's kind of like when you you see something that you want in a store and you think about it for a long time. And, you, and finally you're like, you know what, I'm just going to buy it. And then you go and try it on and it looks like shit. And you're like, oh, I guess I just built that up in my mind. Uh-huh. And you, like, picture yourself wearing it. Anyways, I pictured all our, our lovely listeners laughing joyfully at our first episode. But anyways, the good news is the second half. So we're going to break the movie into two episodes. The second episode was not lost to the sands of time. And that and one's so, a bang. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a good one. But um, just if you notice any, like, incongruities between this first episode installment of the movie review and the second it is because we, our systems failed and we're blaming 2020 and an ancient curse. And I'd like to point out too that time seems to have lost all meaning. So I blame that as well. I'm going to have to agree with you there. And I actually, I've been working from home in this room for so long that when I sat down to record this episode, I was like, I can't possibly sit in the same place that I sit every day in my home office. So I had to just go to a different corner of the room. <laughs> A different corner, not even a different room, just a different corner. <laughs> well, you know, this is my quiet room where I get the good Wi-Fi, so <laughs> we're not professionals. We don't have a studio. <laughs> <laughs> so it goes, oh, so it goes. Yeah. So, Miss Fisher and Cri the Crypt of Tears, the long-awaited film. Full disclosure, before the pandemic changed everything, we did go see this in theaters on, like, probably the last possible day we could have seen it in theaters. And... <laughs> I'm really glad we did. We did release a Hot Takes episode. So if you're a loyal listener that listens to every episode, you did hear us squealing in the theater um, right after having seen it. But we dressed now, up. We sanitized. Yeah. <laughs> dressed up, sanitized. We were so young then. Oh, man. Back then, I thought this would all be over by June. Mm -hmm. Anyways, this, this podcast 
is not about the pandemic. It's about the wonderful escapism of Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears, which it is. I I really like this movie. I've watched it now multiple times, and I love it. It's just there's so much to love about it. It's madcap. It's wacky. It's 100% Miss Fisher. You get everything, basically everything that I wanted in the movie happens. Yeah, you know, I got to say, I was really worried that I was going to be disappointed because sometimes, you know, when you when you really have a long time to anticipate something, you build it up too much in your mind. And just like we were just saying, like the doll. <laughs> and then when you get it, it's not it's not as good as you wanted, you know, and I was very worried that that was mm-hmm. going to happen. And it didn't. I really I really enjoyed the movie. I've watched I've also watched it a bunch of times. And I, I think it's, yeah, it's zany. And I just, I've always loved that about the show. So I love that about the movie that it's, it's a little silly at times, but I like that. Well, and we can get into this more when we do the scene by scene recap, but like the beginning sequence where she like steals the motorbike and jumps onto the train and all of that, it's like so ridiculous and so madcap. But I was like, you know what? It's what we needed because it's like a James, the beginning of a James Bond movie where he has like this, the crazy sequence of like running over skyscrapers and whatever, except it's Spriny Fisher. And it just, um, my latest rewatch, I was thinking about that and I was like, this is exactly what I wanted. And I can like sort of laugh at how silly it is, but also I just love it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, she is the female James Bond. Yeah. Or Indiana Jones, maybe more. Yeah. Apt, yeah. More of an Indian. Jones. Yeah. Okay, hot take. They should make another Indiana Jones movie, but have Miss Fisher play Indiana Jones. Hundred percent. Hundred percent. I mean, isn't Doctor Who played by a lady now? Please don't don't at me, Doctor Who fans. <laughs> yes, I I think I think she is. Well, there you have it. I don't watch Doctor Who, although I thought about picking it up, and then it just seems like such a big commitment. Gosh, yeah, oh. same. <laughs> um, but the good news is, so Miss Fisher. This is a side note, but. Miss Fisher's Modern Mysteries got picked up for a second season. So the franchise continues, even though the movie is out and available. Mm. Too bad they already spent all of their sexual tension currency in the first season. You never know. You never know. See, you never that's know. The other thing I loved about this movie is that the show ends with Jack and Fry. I mean, it lands on a cliffhanger of like, what's going to happen? But like, they finally kissed. And then the movie, you still get all that glorious sexual tension. <laughs> Oh, man. Even though they kissed at the end of the show. Yes. Well, I guess with all that being said, should we get into our recap? Yes, let's do it. Let's all right. Do it. So Miss Fisher and the Crypt of Tears Part 1 um, opens with some text about uh, Palestine. <laughs> I don't don't worry. I wrote it down and took a lot of notes. So buckle up, everyone. That's good, because my only note says I know absolutely nothing about British colonial rule of Palestine. Well, <laughs> so take I away. did some research. So the, the caption at the beginning is 11 years after the Great War, Britain has stalled on its promise to end colonial rule of Palestine, and Jerusalem has become a tinderbox. So I looked into this, and Britain ruled in Palestine from 1922, approved by the League of Nations after World War One, and they were mandated to represent both Arab and Jewish interests. Um, but the borders had really been set up arbitrarily, partly in alliance with the King of Jordan as a reward for his help in the war. Um, I mean, this is like the story of Middle Eastern history, and I'm not an expert by any means, but this is sort of the context that this is happening in. So by 1929, Britain seemed to have a pretty weakened presence in Palestine, and that was the year that the Walling, Wailing Wall riots um, 
happened over access to the Western Wall. So the British set up this commission to look into the riots, determined that more regulation was needed on Jewish settlements and illegal immigration. But it was like a really tense, like 1920 time was was really, um, really tense time. And then Britain ruled in Palestine until 1948 when Israel declared independence. Um, And then the riots um, were mostly, for the most part, took the form of Arabs attacking Jews and destroying Jewish property. Um, So it was like it was a pretty big and let's see, 133 Jews were killed and hundreds of others were injured. So it was definitely a very fraught time. My take is that the show takes place slightly before the riots happened, but um, sort of when it was leading up to the the riots. I don't Hmm. know that for sure. That was just from reading about it. That's what it seems like they're leading up to. Well, I'd also definitely watch a sequel or a spinoff movie that was just Shirin Abbas, Palestinian activist. Oh, my God. I don't know. Yes. Shirin needs a spinoff for sure. Yeah. She's great. Yeah. What does she get up to after this? I really want to know. I mean, she goes back to Palestine at the end of the movie. So it's true. Um. So then after those uh, Star Wars-esque opening credits. Con- uh, anyway, after that. <laughs> After that, <laughs> the scene opens with a woman in a cell. She's speaking Arabic. Um, we don't know what she's saying. And then uh, it cuts to another person, woman, in a veil and totally <laughs> face covered. A very bedazzled veil, I might add. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. Fancy so many veil. sequence. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she's darting through the streets, pursued by some sort of military men. Um, she climbs across rooftops uh, before she's spotted. And she snags her veil on like a tree and then casts it off to escape and distract the policeman who's like shooting at her. And Um, then suddenly, (laughs) go ahead. Who could it be? (laughs) Who could this mysterious figure who's showing, I might add, a lot of ankle under those robes? Well, it's not wearing high heels. (laughs) Who could it be? (laughs) So a golden shoe emerges, followed by a golden. (laughs) Glittering gown. Which just like, what? Did she have that hiked up under the blue ropes? Where did it come from? I don't understand. You know, how was she running in those pumps? I mean, I, I ask that question every episode of the show, but. <laughs> anyway, it scans upward. It's Miss Fisher set against a glorious skyscape. It's really an awesome open, though. Like, I'm glad that it's, again totally madcap totally crazy but like when she's standing there with her gun and the like bedazzled gown it just and for the like intro or for the title scene it, it's pretty awesome oh, i yeah. don't i'm not going to complain about it but i will note the shoes she's wearing with the gold dress are different than the shoes she's wearing when she's running which means that somewhere under those robes she's carrying a change of shoes you think that's what that means and not just that there's a continuity error in the film <laughs> <laughs> no i refuse to believe that it's continuity error, and I think she had a little, a little like bag under. No, because she doesn't have a bag when she. Anyways, I'll stop talking about it. It's, it's not important. <laughs> Oof! If only we could get Essie Davis on here to interview her, or maybe the scriptwriter or the costume designer. Anyway. <laughs> so she next up, she drops in uh, through the window on a male acquaintance, a professor who professes himself to be brokenhearted. Uh, and she are you here to pick up the tiny pieces of my broken heart? <laughs> what else is she ever doing besides solving mysteries? 
<laughs> so she's looking for a woman named Sharina Boss who's in trouble, and she thinks that this professor might have some info. Uh, and with a bribe of a scarab, he tells her that Sharin is wanted for spreading anti-British propaganda. But, okay, with the promise of a scarab, or with this scarab that she's offering him, but she also threatens to butter him up like a crumpet, which I think is just a disturbing, um, like, imagery. Sounds pretty tasty to me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, every time I watch this, when I see the, the foot extend and he sort of, like, grabs it, like, nothing he is doing is, like, helping her get into the... He's just sort of like, he just sort of like half-heartedly grabs her foot. Imagine if she just let go when he was just holding her foot. She would have fallen out the window. She would have gotten a concussion. Also, what if it wasn't her? (laughs) Well, obviously he knew her ankle and calf, so. I guess so. Um, I also have noted that he is ancient, and I just, that continued to bother me the whole time. He's too old for her. He's too old. All right. I wonder how old that actor is. I'd be interested to know. So just then the cops arrive to arrest her um, and she's taken down to the station where her gun is confiscated, but poor bullet control is exercised and a bullet rolls under the desk unnoticed by the constable. Um, She's accused of having been up to no good. She has been dancing in the streets with undesirables past curfew, et cetera, et cetera. After 9 p.m., I might add, dancing in the street after 9 p.m. I mean, in these troubled times, you can't do that here either. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's not a a curfew anymore, I don't think. We said this podcast wasn't going to be about COVID. (laughs) Miss Fisher and the COVID of tears. It doesn't work. Um. No, no, it doesn't work at all. Anyways, we also learned that her visa was for sightseeing which is hilarious um but then she's like no no that's why i'm here and she's like the dome um the dome of the of kwabata sakra at sunset is one of the reasons i came and i did look that up too and it's one of the most recognizable sites in jerusalem it's the dome of the rock on the temple mount and it's where get ready for it god created the world and adam as well as where abraham went to sacrifice his son isaac so um wow so that is a that is a sight to see literally where god created the world so like it just popped out from that point or uh unclear um i'm not sure how the creation of the world could be pinpointed to one spot but that is what the internet said about this famous site interesting okay well i'm gonna take that face value um (laughs) so she then finally admits that she's looking for shirin on behalf of her uncle of Sharin's uncle, Sheikh Khalil, who is a friend of Miss Fisher's friend, Lord Lofthouse, who fought in the war. Um, and then the, I guess, I'm not sure if he's like a, he's a policeman or, I'm not, I'm not sure who this guy is, but he uh, sort of indicates that he thinks those officers that fought in the war just kind of spent all their time in the the drinking lounge or yeah, he, <laughs> some terrible <laughs> paraphrasing. <laughs> well, yeah, so she's, it's, um, she says, like, well, Sheikh Khalil helped overthrow the Ottomans during the war, war. And then Montague, and he works for the, the British mandate, mandated authorities. So he's like a British government official. Right. Um, but he's like, Ugh, they did most of their overthrowing from the officer's lounge, which in hearing Lofty talk about it later is definitely true. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like Lofty never left the lounge. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Oh, also, so some of the undesirables, this is another thing I researched, that she's accused of consorting with is the Black Hand Organization. And I looked it up, and it was an anti-British and anti-Jewish jihadist group, officially founded in 1930, but apparently, like, the idea of the group came during the 1929 riots. And then I was just like, she seems like she was friends with them. And I was like, this actually seems, they were they were kind of involved in a lot of really bad violence. So I'm like, huh, I wonder... Anyways, I feel like that's <clears throat> that could have been an episode of the show, though, given her her propensity to hang out with, you know, anarchists and whatnot. But oh, they don't yeah. really get into this in the show. It's just something they mentioned that I researched because I researched like every single thing that they mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I I would love to see some spinoff episodes of uh, all these little side things, you know, like how sometimes uh, like a book series will have like little like later will come out little spin-offs that are yeah, just like, yeah. from the files or whatever. Uh, I'd watch that. I mean, I'd watch literally anything that has to do with Miss Fisher. I'm currently trying to figure out, and if listeners, if any of you know, how I can watch the Chinese version of Miss Fisher, which is now out. I've seen some like, <laughs> images from it online. Um, but it's like, yeah, a Chinese version of Miss Fisher. And I, I'm dying to watch it. Oh, yeah. Listeners, please let us know. I mean, um, strictly legal ways to watch it. And if you know of any other ways, you know, you can mention them, but we obviously wouldn't use them. Yeah, we definitely wouldn't do it, but we'd love to just be informed on the topic. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> so, um, so uh, a constable comes in bringing her luggage. He's sort of a, a Hugh Collins of the desert. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering... Like, where'd this luggage come from? Did they had all this time to, like, bring her to the station and go to her hotel and get her stuff? Like, why not just deport her, I guess? Yeah, I mean, they must have, yeah, they must have raided her hotel while they were chasing her through the streets in the beginning. Oh, yeah, that's probably true. Well, anyway, she's left alone with the constable and immediately subdues him with the stray bullet and also her underwear. <laughs> Which is so funny. Well, yeah. and as she's doing that, Montague is on the phone and he's like, Miss Fisher won't be causing us any more trouble as she has like picked up this bullet with her toes, reloaded the gun and tied up the constable with her like stockings. <laughs> her garter belt is so just like funny. draped around his neck. <laughs> <laughs> that is probably some like expensive silk French lingerie too. But we know she already, she had snagged it getting in the window at Linnaeus's, so. That's true. That's true. Um, It wasn't good for anything. She's tying up a constable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's not the first time she's used her underwear to uh, slow down a policeman either. (laughs) I mean that in a literal sense, not, or in a figurative sense. I'm not sure what I mean. Anyway. (laughs) Well, not not a suggestive sense. Yeah. 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 Although... She has done both. Mm-hmm. Um, so after a costume change, I'm not sure what I'm not sure where she stashed her luggage, but she's changed into a new dress. Um, and she's found Sharon in her cell. Well, and... it's a new dress. It's culottes, though. And as oh, I was watching right. it through this time, I was really noticing the culottes. Yes. Yeah. So the red dress with the blue um, contrast does appear to us to be culottes. Which is neat, I guess. <laughs> it makes, I don't really like this dress, but the fact that it's culottes makes me like it more. Yeah. So I really love the red color, and I think it's so striking. Like, just a red, bright red silk dress is, like, a dream outfit for me. But I don't love the blue inside of those box pleats. I think it, it just doesn't work for me. Yeah, well, when they, this was the dress they showed, like, one of the first 
like promo photos they released from the movie showed the dress but they didn't show the skirt it was just the top and I was like that is amazing but oh, the, I yeah. think it's, it's like a little too short like I feel like it should be longer given the color of it but maybe what do I know I'm not very stylish so <laughs> I think you're very stylish you don't have to say that I <laughs> <laughs> wasn't fishing for compliments she is stylish listeners she is um <laughs> So, uh, I have in my notes, not exactly an inconspicuous outfit for a jailbreak, which I mean, true. I generally don't wear bright red when I'm trying to blend in. <laughs> and but, yeah, at one point she's like standing below the jail window and she's in that dress and there's just like people walking below her. And I'm like, wouldn't anyone say, what are you doing? Why are you standing on that barrel outside the jailhouse? <laughs> <laughs> but everyone just walks by. It's like, okay, nothing to see here. Um, so then Miss Fisher bribes a donkey with some pastries to pull the window bars off of the cell. Um, <laughs> which, like, really, that donkey and the power, those bars, like, must not have been secured very well. It reminds me of um, Harry Potter, Chamber <laughs> <laughs> of, <course laughs> so. of Secrets, when the Dursleys put bars on Harry's window, but then the Weasley twins um, use, well, they steal the flying car and they use it to pull the bars off the window. It's basically exactly the same situation. <laughs> really is um so shirin is reluctant to leave and has to be talked into it she wants justice for her murdered family but miss fisher gets her out that window and they begin to escape through the streets also as soon as she said murders murdered you can see miss fisher's like eyes light up she's like murdered murdered (laughs) you said i'm even more interested killed slain dead unsolved mystery (laughs) Um, so they're running through the streets and they steal some poor sod's motorbike. <laughs> she promises to get him a new one, but she doesn't take down his address and phone number. So I'm <laughs> not sure how she's going to do that. It's oh, probably his really? most valuable decision. Yeah, like, oh, you're just going to send him a new one. But I was thinking about it this time through and I was like, maybe, you know, knowing Miss Fisher, maybe she did. Maybe she like contacted and was like, okay, there's somebody who like, this would be a memorable incident. So she could probably call around and identify who this guy was because it probably would have like made the news or like people might have known. So it's potentially feasible that she got him a new bike. Yeah, you know, actually from that light, I, I like that. I like that angle. So she borrows a motorbike, <laughs> promising an upgrade. And um, the police pursue. It's sort of a low-speed chase. Um, Miss Fisher shoots at the car, which I, for some reason, Dan, while watching with me, found this scene to be completely implausible. I was like, I don't know anything about car chases, but whatever. <laughs> um, and the car breaks down, but unfortunately, Sharon and Miss Fisher have come up against a cliff. Uh, and I don't know why they didn't just stay on the motorbike and, like, ride in the other direction or something, but... No, they... I don't know! No, absolutely no reason, except for excitement, I guess. But um, they just decided to jump off of the cliff onto a moving train. (laughs) At this point, I have in my notes, Dan said out loud, Miss Fisher in the CGI train. (laughs) (laughs) He just didn't think this was very realistic. Um, But, okay, you know what? I have a theory on the train, though, because she says, oh, it's right on time. And when she's in the police station and they're saying, like, we're going to send you back to London... And they're like, your train will depart at 1600 hours. So I think she knew that this train was heading to London because then presumably like Sharin gets on the train and goes to London and that's how she gets reunited with the sheep. So I think actually Friday knew exactly what train it was. Hmm. Okay. And yeah. It was going to be, and that's why she led them on the chase to that particular spot so that she could jump onto the train. Hmm. 
Now I'm very curious as to what route this this train would have taken. Do you think that she got on a boat at some point? Well, no. So, unrelatedly, this is a an Agatha Christie-based research line that I did. I did a lot of research on the Orient Express recently. Mm. And so, trains did used to go from, like, Lebanon to, like, through Turkey and into Europe. Like, that was the Orient Express. So... It could have been gotten, you know, sure into France. I don't think the train went under the channel in the 20s. I don't know when the channel, the channel was built, but all right. So at some point she would have had to get on a boat to get to London, but there was train service. Sadly, it's discontinued because I would love nothing more than to take the Orient Express from like Istanbul to Paris, but you can't do it anymore. There are like luxury Orient Express trains, but they cost literally thousands of dollars, and I'm not ready to pony up for that. How many? How many thousands? Because I'm there. <laughs> like, like, like ten thousand dollars. Oh my god! <laughs> it's like prohibitively expensive at this point in my life. I'm not it's saying someday I won't like, bring for it, but it's probably like a multi-day luxury hotel stay, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. But anyway, someday, maybe when I save a little more money, I'll spring for it. But not, not at this point. I remember looking into it and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, no, this doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, so they're riding on top of this train and the train's about to go into a tunnel. And so Miss Fisher helps Sharin down from the top of the train, but doesn't make it herself. And we're left with the impression that she's been crushed by <laughs> this train tunnel. <gasps> But keep in mind that she managed to walk on this presumably pretty fast-moving train without disrupting her hat situation or her scarf. So if anyone can keep their hat on their head while doing this, they can survive this tunnel situation. Yes, so that's true. She did have a really good chance. But actually, this is the end of the movie. Um, It's only about 25 minutes long. She does die in, like, about the third scene. And that's it. It's over. Yeah. So they're up, you know, mystery solved. Or not. Dead, done. Dead. Um, no. <laughs> well, we so, know from Miss Modern, Ms. Fisher's modern mysteries, but that's not the case because we know that she gets lost in Papua New Guinea on like a plane trip. <clears throat> that's true. Do you think? Did they write all those episodes of Miss Fisher's Modern Mysteries before? No, it was must have been after the movie, right? I think it would have been after they wrote the movie. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose the movie script had probably been written for a long time. Mm-hmm. These are the GoFundMe and everything. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the movie script was written for a while. Uh, so back in the land down under, um, we have one scene set in Australia, which presumably is just to get make sure that our standard cast makes an appearance. Um, which but, I love. Uh, Dot is crying. That is the downside of this movie is that Dot and Hugh and Sess and Burr aren't more in it. Yeah, I would have. I mean, I love the film as it is, and I don't want there to be like less of Jack and Miss Fisher, but it would have been also cool to have more of Dot and Hugh and Burton and Sess. Maybe a little side plot involving some kind of zany mystery or pregnancy mishap. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah, but Ashley Cummings was like filming a different show. Nostrad. Yeah. So I think it was just, there was a lot of reasons that. Yeah, that wasn't going to be the case. But. I could have been an actor in that show, and I regret it to this day. <laughs> I didn't oh. want to take the time off of work, but I got the casting call for it. Wait, from they the filmed in Boston? Parts of it, I think, yeah. Uh. I, and I knew she was in it, and I was like, shoot, I really should do that. But I would have had to take the day off work, so. <laughs> oh, you should have done it. I know. Uh. I won't make that mistake again. 
Okay, okay. You have to promise. Got really bad reviews anyway, I think. So. <laughs> so who cares? It had Ashley Cummings in it. You could have been in it. That's true. So um, Dot is crying. Uh, she's being ferried to the police station by Bert and Sess. And they have just received news of Miss Fisher's death in Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Dot is pregnant, so she can't attend the funeral. Um, and this is their only appearance in the movie for all of these characters. Yeah, but it's so sweet. She's like, Miss Fisher saved me from Latvian anarchists and Christmas murderers. <laughs> and then she, Wait, you know, she also says that she saved her from the streets. And I don't, does she get fired? I don't remember what happens. I mean, I remember what happens yeah. in the book. Oddly, but not in the film or in the show. Yeah, she gets fired because she's like leaving the house like crying. And that's why she calls Miss Fisher because Miss Fisher gave her her card. Right, because they think she's the one who served the poison to tea. Yeah, well, I mean, Laura Andrews knows exactly who served the poison tea because it was her. But she's trying to make Dot the scapegoat. Duplicitous, ruining that poor maid's life. Well, arguably, she set her up to succeed by having to go to Miss Fisher for help. Anyways... So anyway, also Jack's yeah. face in this scene is like heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah, uh, Dan actually said if during the scene, "Poor Jack, never gonna get laid again," <laughs> which is silly because they were not sleeping together up till this point, unless you believe certain fan theories, which I do not. <laughs> right. Right. Also, arguably, at some point, perhaps Jack could, even in the event that Miss Fisher had really died, could have. I mean, I, I'm not I'm not saying I, I don't want to, you know, go into this territory, but presumably he's an attractive man. And after his grieving is over, he might have found someone else. Yeah. I mean, I, I think in movies, they're always like making it seem like people never love again. But, I, you know, I, I think that's harmful. <laughs> that's a harmful yeah, mistake. I think sometimes it is very possible. Anyways, got to move on. Got to move on. And then Dot also says, poor Inspector Robinson, when she went away, she broke his heart. Aww. Yeah, I mean, and that, that begs the question, how long has she been away? And I, I I think it's still an unanswered question when she said, come after me, Jack Robinson. Did she mean, follow me to London? And if so, why didn't he? Um, and yeah, how long has it been? We don't know. Well, it hasn't been that long because the show takes place in 1928 and this is only 1929 so That's true yeah but she's obviously like found the time to marry a maharaja and get embroiled in this mystery with shrin and has been in london you know well, obviously she started in london but like she's done quite a few things from the end of the show to the beginning of the movie although it is miss fisher so she can really pack a lot in in a short period of time so she can she can <laughs> Um, so then in the next scene, Jack arrives in London for the funeral. Uh, he's pulling up tearfully to the loft oh. house's manor cab. He's looking over a photo of Miss Fisher taken at the police station in season one. Oh, it's so, it's so sad. Even yeah. every time I watch it, I get a little sad, even though I know that she's not really dead. <laughs> it's so sad. He doesn't know that yet. And then you have to think about the fact that he's thought that she's been, he's thought for six weeks that she's dead. You know, he's been grieving for six yeah. weeks. Uh, yeah. So the there's a memorial service on the lawn of the loft houses, um, and they've brought out a large green recliner chair for Aunt Prudence, which is very funny. There's and, also uh, 
like an amazing shot of the empty chairs with that green chair. It's just like a beautiful shot, but it's also so funny when you know that the fancy green chair is Ram Prudence. It seems like, not to bring up Harry Potter again, but I will, it just <laughs> seems like the kind of thing that like Dumbledore would do. Like he'd show up to some kind of formal hearing or like a, I don't know, a, a funeral and there wouldn't be enough chairs and he'd be like, well, I'll just magic one up. And like, that would be the chair that he would oh, create. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Everyone else would be in a folding chair. Um, so, uh, I also, I have written, would Aunt P really have sailed to England for this? She seems very fussy. Yeah, but she has a bunch of family in in London, and I'm sure she enjoys, like, high society or whatever. I get the feeling that she splits her time between London and Australia. Oh, yeah, you could be right, you could be right. Um, so, Lofty gives a bit of a eulogy for Phryne... (laughs) where he talks about how she taught him to ride a motorbike and taught his younger brother, Jonathan, how to dance the black bottom. <laughs> Which I looked up, of course. Of course you did. <laughs> it was a dance that was all the rage in the 20s. Um, so it originated in uh, the rural South in African-American uh, communities and specifically in New Orleans in the first decade of the 20th century. Um, and the jazz pianist and composer named, get this, Jelly Roll Morton. <laughs> what a name wrote the tune black bottom stomp and the title of his song is referring to the black bottom area of detroit and okay. i believe we looked up the dance and it, it looks a little a little madcap and very fun to dance so sounds it, like it would be right up miss fisher's alley exactly exactly um, so then uh jonathan or lofty introduces jack to give his eulogy and just then a plane <laughs> roars over the lawn, <laughs> dropping something, which turns out to be a wrench with a note tied to it, telling them to move the tea trolley so that she can land. Um, and she just hops out of the plane with no, seemingly no knowledge that she's just landed at her own funeral. <laughs> and so give, yes. So I have written in my notes, she gives Jonathan a big kiss, but upon my more recent rewatch, uh, I'm just not sure that, did she kiss him on the lips? Yes. She started, yes. 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 You think so? Okay. I, that's why Jack looks, because she kisses Lofty on the cheek. Yeah. And then she kisses Jonathan on the lips. And then that is when Jack is like, what the fuck? She does look at him quite longingly. Jonathan. She's like, oh, Jonathan. And you're like, I mean, every time I watch it, now obviously I know what happens, but their relationship is never explained. And when we first watched the movie, I was horrified. I was like, who is this man? Who is he? She's kissing him on the lips in front of all these people. Yeah, I guess my reaction has been dulled by multiple rewatches, but it is very, it is very shocking, isn't it? And it's like, I think, you know, why didn't she see Jack first? Why didn't she see, like, I just feel like, you know, she would have, her eyes would have been drawn to him, but I don't know. Yeah, I feel like like when that, you know, that special person is in a room, like, even if you don't expect them to be there, you just, like, sense them. And I just, maybe, maybe not. I don't I don't know that I've ever actually been in that situation, but I just feel like <laughs> she would have felt his presence. I don't know. Maybe I'm being, like, sentimental, but. Well, Jack sees this, and he looks shocked. Um, And then also, like, she doesn't seem to realize that the newspapers have reported her dead, which is very odd because it's been six weeks. Six weeks. You think she would have gotten news? Yeah, but she was obviously, okay, we don't know how she escaped from that train. We don't know how she got the plane that she's flying. Like, she's obviously on some grand adventure trying to, like, finagle her way back to London. 
that took six weeks. And like, I'm imagining her, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what she was doing, but she could have very easily just not read a newspaper. That's true. That's true. What was she doing during that time? Anyway, that's another spinoff that I'd like to see. Yes. <laughs> so Jack is furious and she is acting very cavalier in the face of his extreme emotion. And it's very rude, which is basically right in character for her to do that to Jack. Um, and he says that he came to farewell her and now he is going to and he stalks off to get in his cab. <laughs> Wait, but for, first we get um, Lady Lofthouse telling Friday that Jack knows about the Maharaja. Oh, so I forgot this is about added that. context to their, then their little exchange. Um, anyways. Great. More on that later. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, it's really heartrending and I feel so bad for Jack. And I think that Phryne, and I feel like we've talked about this before, but I think it's for the show or for the movie that she does this. But I think it's like completely insensitive the way that she reacts to him. And I don't know that it really makes any, I don't know that it's actually how she would have reacted. I think it just adds to the sexual tension buildup later, but. I Yeah, I guess you're right. I think it's very insensitive and it's in line with the way she would have acted like in early seasons of the show. But you think at this point she would not be doing that still. Like, literally the last interaction they had was her kissing him and saying, come after me, Jack. And then this is, ha- and then it's like, that didn't happen at all. And now she's just like, oh, what, what did my eulogy say? And it's just like, she must realize what she's putting him through. I don't know. Yeah. She's just like, oh, hey, I'm back. Yeah. Um, Anyways, it works for the rest of the plot of the movie. So again, I'm not complaining. It's just, a, it seems a little off to me. But Yeah. Um, well, also, we get so, a great line where um, Pamp Prudence is like, is like glad to see her alive, and then she's like, "You almost killed me with that spanner," and then she's like, "Darling, Aunt P, I would have planned your murder much better than that," which is a great line. <laughs> that's true. That's true. So uh, next up, we are in the drawing room of the loft houses, and some important family details are discussed, which I couldn't really follow, but I think it was just sort of a clue that the Lord original Lord Lofthouse was not Jonathan's real father. Also, we get another kiss on the lips. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. That's important. <laughs> and she's wearing another dress. I don't like, cause it's the length of the one in the beginning where it's just kind of like this little flare. And I feel like it makes her look younger. I don't mm. know. I don't love it. I don't really remember this dress. This is, um, and this is also where we hear more about a uh, lofty and Montague drinking in Palestine. Right. And, and we, we start also to suspect that perhaps Lofty has a little bit of a problem. Yeah, I think he's like pouring himself another whiskey in the scene. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, he takes the entire bottle of champagne off of Crippen's tray. <laughs> he's Crippen. like coming, coming around with the glasses and Lofty takes a glass and just the rest of the bottle. <laughs> um, um, and yeah, it's the the family detail is that they're looking at a picture of Lord Lofthouse. And Phryne's like, it looks like he disapproves of us. And I'm like, of of you? Are you a couple? Are you engaged? What is going on, Phryne? We never find out. He probably but, would disapprove of this fornicating. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, then Jonathan moodily says, it's me he always disapproved of. Anyway. Which is odd because, you know, Jonathan seems to be the better son. Lofty is just kind of a drunk. He's frittering away the estate we learn later. Yeah. Um, also in this scene is when I noted that I, the first time I watched this, and this is really embarrassing, but I thought Eleanor was Jonathan and Lofty's mother. 
But in fact, they just cast an actually age-appropriate wife for Lofty. Oh, yes, excellent point. She, I wish that they developed her character more, but, you know, I, I think, well, I, I mentioned this more in episode two, but just the fact that her, like, she doesn't even get to have the affair with the Sheik Ugh. that she's been accused of. I know. And then he, he gets killed. It's so sad, because I feel like they seem to have a really, like, tantalizing relationship that, again, wish was developed more, but cut too short. Yes. For, for frankly, no good reason. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, Miss Fisher and Lofty do a bit of fencing after Lofty and Jonathan have some kind of fight or disagreement about, I think it's about the war, isn't it? Yeah, well, it, it sort of gets set up in the drawing room. So um, we learn that there's there's a ball being hosted in Shrin's honor, which I am so glad that there's a ball in this because we needed to advance the plot and also for, like, tuxedos. Um, <laughs> yes. Absolutely. But Prudence is saying that she's sponsoring Sharin for her debut in Civilized Society. Um, and then this is when Lofty gets, or Sharin says something about like, excuse me, we had we had society in Palestine too, which is like, yeah, good point. Like, I, I just, I'm like, all right, Sharin, good, good for you for speaking up. She's like, excuse me. And then that's when Lofty is like waxing eloquent about his rooftop in Jerusalem and how he misses it so much. And Jonathan is all like, irritated and he's like well pity about the war it's not my fault that father couldn't you keep you from the front line so like this this daddy issues is just like it's just mounting before uh, the fencing match right right so miss fisher is ready to defend jonathan's honor here in the fencing she easily defeats lofty um which he says is because she doesn't follow the rules and she says it's because the rules are always written by men and i mean amen to that i know <laughs> it's so great I think that was in the trailer, and I was like, yes, I'm going to love this movie. <laughs> yeah, although them putting that in the trailer kind of made it seem like Lofty was going to be the villain, which he, of course, isn't. But... I mean, yeah, no, he isn't really the villain. <laughs> Bit of a dick, really, is all yeah. he is. <laughs> um, so then at dinner... Well, uh, we also learned that this is when we get a little of the background on what happened to Sharin's family, so... Um, she's like, what was their investigation? And Jonathan was like, oh, which after you know that Jonathan was like literally there, it's so irritating when he's like, oh, I heard that the village was buried under a giant sandstorm. Like, oh, come on. Anyways, he's. <sighs> I'm just sighing deeply thinking about Jonathan. He's, a, he's just kind of a weak character. Yes. I mean, like literally a, a weak, has weak character. Um, yes. Agreed. Um, so then basically Lofty is like, well, Sharin showed up to a British outpost and was returned to the Sheik and has been indebted to us ever since, which is just so like, such a, he's such a colonizer. Ugh. Oh, yeah. I didn't even think of it that way. You're absolutely right. Um, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> this is, we also get this exchange by, with Crippens and Jonathan where, um, Jonathan is, like, going to attack Lofty, but Crippens, like, stops him, and there's this, like, weird look between them, and Phryne sees it, and I'm sure this is when she's beginning to build her, like, ludicrous solution to the plot. Crippens. <laughs> so, side note, I sort of got the name Crippens, like, stuck in my head, <laughs> like, last okay. week. And I just couldn't remember. I knew it was a, the name of a butler, and I was like, what? Which <laughs> fucking period <laughs> drama is that from? 
And I started to think that maybe it was Lady Violet from Downton Abbey because she has a butler. And I just pictured her being like, Crippens would never do such a thing. Crippens. And I just, I like a crossover. Anyway. Is it Moe's Lady Violet's butler, though? Molesley? Um, no. Molesley is... that's not Moe's Mo- in the office. No, Molesley's starts out as uh cousin matthew's footman or sorry as his valet and then he i think he works sometimes as a footman at the big house um anyway he's got a whole arc i think he eventually does come back to be a footman there um i thought he was and the then, butler because he was trying to advance himself and then something happens and he gets sacked or i don't remember man i haven't watched that show in forever well many things happened to him I, he's sort of considered to be a little bit of a joke i think anyway yes, yes. um I wa- I recently watched seasons one and two, so that's why I remember these things. Um, so then at dinner, uh, Lofty's wearing this horrible turtleneck that makes him look like an uncircumcised penis. Oh, like a dude from the 70s. <laughs> um, and for some reason at this dinner, everyone seems a little bit perturbed. Um, it's one well, of those like... like a lot and we see the Sheik and Eleanor kind of flirting and it just seems like a very tense family dinner. Yeah, it's definitely one of those scenes where there's like just moody music and no dialogue and a lot of like strange looks being given and sips of drinks being taken and that's that. (laughs) So then after dinner, Shirin shows Miss Fisher a letter um, that is from the man who saved her from the sandstorm that destroyed her village. Um, and he wants her to meet him at midnight, but Miss Fisher notices that the letter was previously opened. Dun dun! Who could it be? Crippens! <laughs> um, so Miss Fisher decides to go instead to this midnight meeting, um, and then Sheikh Khalil sees her leaving Shirin's room and encourages her not to believe Shirin's nonsense, which, like, I mean, yeah, maybe if a teenage girl tells you about a conspiracy theory, like, don't believe it but in this case she was right so <laughs> also they're definitely setting him up to look like super suspicious like the music and the like framing of the camera is like very much setting it up so that you're suspecting him anyways it's a red herring but it's a red herring it wouldn't be a miss fisher movie without a red herring so exactly. or more than one yeah then we get like a whole sequence of red herrings because we see lofty watching her leave and jonathan and everybody's pretty suspicious yeah crippens gives her the key yeah (laughs) i wrote in my notes lots of lurking in this confusing family (laughs) names i can't keep straight (laughs) now i can't now after watching the movie five times the first time i couldn't tell lofty and jonathan apart i didn't understand who they were i was very confused (laughs) oh yeah because well i thought that eleanor was the mom and that or that maybe Lofty was, like, the stepdad. Anyways, I was completely wrong on all fronts. <laughs> oh, so also, like, a note that I have here is, um, if you know, I mean, we find out that Crippens has been the killer all along. So he's the one who's going to shoot the guy in the church in the next scene, or in two scenes. But how does he get there if Miss Fisher is taking the car? Does he ride a bicycle? Like, is there a second car? Does he even know how to drive? How's this happening? You could take Never a cab. Explained could have taken a cab that would leave a paper trail you don't take a cab to a murder That's <laughs> well, a maybe, maybe, maybe he took the cab to an a separate a different location and then walked to the church maybe he, he did. covered his tracks 
Maybe. Or maybe he flew. Later on, he somehow he materializes a plane from, like, nowhere to follow them to the desert. That's true. <laughs> so, um, along the way, Miss Fisher stops at Jack's boarding house. And I, why doesn't, I mean, why doesn't he stay at the loft houses? They probably offered him he refused. Oh, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure that is what happened. Because he did not want to deal with Franny anymore. Yeah, and I mean, he just checked. It's the kind of thing he would refuse to do. Like, he would be exactly. like, no, I couldn't possibly. Also, he probably didn't um, want to see Jonathan kiss Franny on the lips anymore. Like, oh, no thanks, get me out of here. Triangle. Um, so, Jack at the boarding house is in a state of undress. <laughs> this is, like, probably, well, it's one of my favorite scenes. It's so good. He looks terrific in that t-shirt. He really oh, does. And the lighting. It's like so soft. And he's like, oh, so good. <laughs> I'm fanning um, myself. <laughs> so they speak through the door of the boarding or the boarding house room. And he is very reluctant to help her with her secret rendezvous, despite her best attempts. She's very she, creative in her persuasive monologue. I, I mean, she starts with, I need you, is like the first thing she says. So. Jack, I need you. For a murder. <laughs> but I don't. I wrote that I have no idea what she's even saying because Jack is in a damn t-shirt. Something about murder. <laughs> well, no, she like paints this picture of the Bedouin tribes in the Negev Desert in Israel and like Shirin, you know, kind of weave Shirin's story into this very like dramatic retelling. Um, but I looked up the Bedouin tribes of the Negev Desert. Um, mm. So this is. A, it is real. Um, it's a group of pastoral nomadic Arab tribes living in the Negev region of Israel. And in the mid to late 1800s, they had started becoming a little more sedentary. So perhaps why we see a more settled village in the flashbacks. I mean, besides the Crypt of Tears, but like it was around the mid to late 1800s. So, you know, a few decades before the movie that they would have been settling down in, in slightly more permanent villages. Um, and then in the 1948, so this is after the movie, but the Arab-Israel War, a lot of them resettled elsewhere. And then between 1968 and 1989, Israel built some townships in the northeast of the Negev Desert for the Bedouin population. And about half of them relocated to the those areas. Um, and now there's about 200,000 um, Bedouin population in the Negev Desert. And... Um, They've basically they've faced discrimination and marginalization over the years and kind of been re reshuffled around a few times. So anyways, that is real. And that is where Sharon's family is or who Sharon's family is. All right. Well, that's some very helpful background. You but, should do like a Miss Fisher annotated like you should write a book. <laughs> um, I don't want to do that much work. These are all quick like Google searches. <laughs> Let's be real. Uh, but I think my conclusion after researching everything is that they really did do a good job on sort of pinning the events of the movie with historical facts. That's true. So well done. Well done. <laughs> yes. Um, so Miss Fisher goes to the church alone and a man waiting in the pew is not happy that Miss Fisher came instead of Shirin. Uh, he gets agitated. Jack then arrives and the man is shot. Um, Jack arrives in a full state of dress, which is a shame. Very unfortunate. Very unfortunate. Um, but Miss Fisher gives Jack her gun and it, indicating that he should pursue the shooter. Um, and she runs to this man's side. He hands her something and says, tell Sharon, I'm sorry. We're all cursed. Then he dies immediately. <laughs> 
Uh, the thing he hands her is an amulet, which she tucks away to hide from the police who have just arrived. She says, we need to keep this from the police to Jack. And Jack is like, we? <laughs> and then he just says it all with his face. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the two of them are hauled into the police station and questioned. Um, the ballistics clear Miss Fisher's gun of the murder. Um, and we find out that the murdered man is Sergeant Wilson, who's wanted for desertion. He walked off with Harry Templeton, who Miss Fisher seems to know. I don't know. She seems to, she repeats the name as if she knows it, but that is never followed up with anything. Oh, I think it's just she's remembering it to investigate later. Ah, yes. So the sergeant then takes their passports, which is very upsetting for Jack because he is supposed to return to Australia in two days time. Um, and then subsequently Crippens arrives to pick up the impounded motor car. Um, and I think this is maybe supposed to be a clue, but it's not really. Uh, and then, well, they, they play music like it's a clue. <laughs> um, but, but Miss Fisher stays to eavesdrop on the police who are talking about how they're concerned about Palestinian relations. Um, well, and then she Montague, runs after Jack. Montague from Jerusalem shows up. Right, 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 right. Yeah, so then he talks to Forsyth, the the, the sergeant, sergeant of the police, and he's like, why did you arrest her? He has critical negotiations underway in London, and she's interfering and seriously sabotaging British-Palestinian relations. But really, he's just talking about um, wanting to finish this railway deal, and he feels like she's going to undermine it somehow. I, this isn't really clear to me, because I'm not sure how... Well, no, I, I guess it because if the Sheik finds out what really happens, he's not going to want to do business with the British, which is kind of what happens. Right. Because he finds that out is, about yes. it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, that is what happens. Um, well, And then it seems of. that Montague knows what happens because he's like, what does she know about Wilson? So it seems like Montague sort of knows what happened in the desert. Yes. So after this, she runs after Jack for a steamy bridge scene. Mm, um, I love this scene, too. <laughs> He's angry because she married the Maharaja, even though she's not the marrying type. And he respected that. <laughs> Time for some faces very close together. Um. She pulls out the amulet. Well, no. After he walks away and then she's like, and I'm very sorry, I'm not dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great line. It's a great line. Um, she also rubs the amulet sort of oh. on his face and neck in a sensual manner, and he's just not having it. He's not he's having like, it. He's like, no, no, no. And it's like such restraint. <laughs> so she convinces him that the fastest way to get rid of her is to help her solve the crime so that they can both get their passports back and he can get out of there. After he suggests the fastest way to get rid of her would be to tie her up and throw her in the river. <laughs> savage um also um, so i did research the maharaja of alwar because of course i did and it it was a real person from what i could figure out um so alwar was a princely state during the period of the british raj in india and the maharaja of alwar, alwar during the 1920s was i'm gonna attempt this and i apologize in advance because i'm probably not gonna pronounce it right but sir J. singh prab prabhakar and he was considered brilliant, but not a very effective administrator of his state. Um, and I found his obituary, and it is wild and contains a lot of strange details about, like, a donkey, a donkey um, fight. <laughs> Anyways. A donkey fight? <laughs> I'll include 
the notes um, in the show notes, the link to this obituary in the show notes. Anyways, also notes that he was considered effeminate, which is part of the plot of this movie. Um, anyways, right. there's also this story about him going to a Rolls Royce dealership in London and being treated really badly and like in a racist manner. And then he goes back the next day with an appointment and says he's an Indian prince and he like shows up on all his like finery, buys out the store and then takes the Rolls Royces back to Ing- India to collect garbage. Oh my God. <laughs> so that's he was like, savage. Yeah. yeah. That's very, that's very pretty woman of him. I wonder if that's where they got the idea for pretty woman. Oh, probably. <laughs> Undoubtedly. It was from this sort of like obscure um, ruler of a state during the British Raj in India. Um, Raja, walking down the street, Maharaja. <laughs> um, anyways, I couldn't find a lot of info about whether he was ever married. Um, I did find a picture from a Maharaja's wedding in 1919, which would have definitely predated when Phryne supposedly marries him in the movie. So it's a little, it's a little thin, but he was, from what I can figure out, a real person who was potentially gay. So. So then Jack and Franny dropping on an old friend, an old friend, literally uh, Professor old. Linnaeus. He's ancient. He's ancient. I can't. <laughs> yes. Um. So he's also surrounded by looted artifacts. Um. And he reminds. Well, that he's returning Fisher. to their rightful homes. That's true. That's true. Um. And he reminds Miss Fisher of a slow boat that they once. <laughs> rode on and apparently just boned the whole time. At least that's what Jack, he's indicating. Jack has a very big eye roll in response to that. <laughs> so like in the background, it's like, oh, Jack. <laughs> um, so the professor translates the inscription on the amulet. Uh, it says Crypt of Tears, and it refers to the myth of Alexander the Great. Um, Alexander wept so much that he created a desert spring after the death of his desert bride. Um, and the crypt is a tomb containing a cursed jewel known as the all-seeing eye. And the amulet is a part of this jewel. Jack is extremely skeptical that this amulet really came from a 2,000-year-old <laughs> cursed tomb. And frankly, so am I. But we're going to go with it. <laughs> well, Linnaeus, he's like, he's he's obviously bought into it. And he's like, no, 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 you need to get rid of this. And then Friday's like, no, no, we need to find out more about it. <laughs> She's like, what do you mean get rid of it? No, now I'm even more interested. <laughs> um, this is also the scene where we get a very, very deep Jack lean, um, which is probably a nod to the fans who love Jack's leaning in the show. He's oh, like yeah. leaned down on the table, him. like very like very deep lean. <laughs> um, we um, also the camera angle indicates that someone is watching them this whole time. Oh, right. Yes. And then the professor goes off somewhere, but then the power cuts out and he makes some kind of a yell, a noise. So Miss Fisher goes after him to see what's wrong. And Jack is left alone amongst the creepy artifacts. I don't know why they don't go together, but I guess that's it's a movie. So <laughs> Jack is suddenly attacked and he knocks over a lamp, which starts a fire. And the attacker makes off with the amulet. Miss Fisher runs after him into the rain, but the man vanishes mysteriously. Uh, Monty puts out the fire as it's Jack not Monty, runs. It's at- Linnaeus. Linnaeus. Oh, sorry. I don't. Yeah, I don't know why I have that in my notes. So Linnaeus puts out the fire as Jack runs after Miss Fisher for a steamy rain scene. Ugh. 
Um, Jackson and his shirt sleeves are both soaking wet, and they just they are about to make out, but then they're cock blocked by the professor. And he's like, I put out the fire, and I, I have in my notes, including the one steaming between Jack and Friday. <laughs> Double but, entendre. But somehow, the good news is that Jack seems to have, have ended up with the amulet, which makes no sense because he yells the pendant as the man runs out. So when when did he get it? Did he just not realize that he had gotten it? Did the man drop it? It's really unclear. Yeah, it is unclear because it's not like he ever catches up with the guy. No. And also, is this man Crippens? Because it doesn't look like Crippens at all. It looks like it a much stockier man. It do- you're right. Maybe he's supposed to have dropped it and Jack picks it up. Yeah, anyways, unclear. But um, I also, so I did some research, <laughs> of course. Um, so first I did some research on the curse of King Tut's tomb because Briny, and I don't know if she's goading Jack or if she really believes in the curse. This is, I still just feel like it's out of character for Briny to believe in this curse as someone who always tries to like get to the bottom of things. But she seems to be very intrigued in this King Tut's tomb curse. And she's like, all those who found his tomb are all dead. And so I researched this and that is not even really close to true. (laughs) But it was a it was a big mania at the time. It was like reported in the papers that there was a curse, right? Yes, and from what I read, it seems that likely it was used to hype the discovery of the tomb. Like like it was like a media ploy to be like, and it was a curse. And there was like one high profile death, and it was this guy who was the fifth Earl of Carnivon, and he was like a British aristocrat and an amateur Egyptologist. And then a year after the tomb was opened, and he helped finance the search, and then a year after the tomb was opened, he um, died. But, and it's like, oh, so mysterious. But in reality, he was like already in poor health and then likely died of a mosquito-borne illness. So, um, however, the idea of the curse was promoted by no less a prominent person than Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, who also wrote a book explaining that fairies are real and in a previous episode, the spiritualist episode, was also big into spiritualism. So anyways, fun fact about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> cool, man. Well, <laughs> he probably would have been a flat earther, too. Anyway. <laughs> um, I also did some research on Alexander the Great to see if there's any basis to this desert bride theory. Okay. Uh, so he did go through Palestine, but there's no record of this myth that they have in the movie. Um, it was basically seems like Palestine was basically a corridor leading to Egypt. Um, so it does seem like he was definitely in Palestine, but I couldn't find anything about this desert bride theory. Hmm. Well, anyway, <laughs> they probably made it up. Yeah, um, which I think I think that makes because there was like a lot of myths and stories about Alexander the Great. So, yeah, this is like definitely it's not historically accurate in like detail, but it is like accurate in terms of the time of there being curses in the news and whatnot. Um, so back at the Loft Houses, Sharin brings Miss Fisher some breakfast in bed and they're both wearing fabulous embroidered oh. garments. Miss Fisher a robe, Sharin a blouse. Also, there's this um, mat. The scene opens with, like, we cut from Jack and Friday in the rain to Friday's clothes drying. And, like, you're just sort of panning over her, like, stockings and her dress. And you're like, <laughs> is she going to be in bed with Jack? And no, she's not. And they just set you up for it. It's so it's so clever and maddening. <laughs> Ugh, a classic Miss Fisher setup. <laughs> Ugh. So, um... 
Miss Fisher gives Shirin the pendant from Sergeant Wilson, and Shirin recognizes it as having belonged to her mother. Then that's basically it for that scene. Well, um, also, Friday asked why the sheik wasn't living in the village when it was attacked. Right. And we find out that he was working for the British and was basically considered a traitor and banished. So. Rough. Uh, yes. And then we also, continuing on the red herring thing, find that he, that the sheik was in London last night and that he had a meeting. A meeting? Um, and then Friday asks her if she's heard of the Crypt of Tears, but she says no. So. Um, so meanwhile, Jack is going to check in on Harry Templeton's widow, uh, who says that Harry went away a good man and then they shot him like a mad dog. And Sergeant Wilson had told her that he and Harry did something that they needed to fix. Um, and he wanted to have a meeting with her last night, but he never showed up and he wanted her astrolabe, which I just am wondering why she even had an astrolabe. What was she doing with it? Well, because Templeton brought it back from Jerusalem. Oh, okay. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. So him and Wilson worked together and then Wilson was trying to get in touch because he wanted the astrolabe because he wanted to break the curse but he didn't show up because he got shot by Crippens in the church. And so, yeah, she gives Jack the astrolabe, presumably that Templeton brought back from war. True. Um, so back at the loft houses, Miss Fisher is sneaking. Um, she breaks into Sheikh Khalil's room and pokes around, finding a contract for the sale of a Palestinian railway to Khalil and Lofty, authorized by Montague. <laughs> <sighs> a clue. Uh, it's definitely a clue for yeah. this, like, kind of confusing side plot. Yes. Also, before we move on, she's sneaking the bill re- billiards room at first, and it is definitely the adventurous club. <laughs> like, oh. I think probably because it's the same. It's probably Rip and Lee where they filmed a lot of it. That's my guess, anyways. Yeah, they didn't film any of it in London. They filmed all the London scenes in Australia, I read, so that makes sense. Anyways, it's, like, definitely, like, the layup is exactly the same. I'm like, this is... <laughs> Yeah. How did she end up at the Adventurous Club? No. Just a quick jaunt to play a game of pool with Dr. Mac. Um, so uh, just then the Sheikh arrives and she has to sneak out the window and she's wearing this fantastic mm. PS sweater and I want one with my Her initials. outfit is so fantastic. Like the shoes coordinated with this plaid skirt with the sweater with her little hat. It's perfect. Yes. So good. Um, um, I also... I did research the British Railways, so it's no there's no evidence that they were sold, though they were originally owned by the French and then bought by the British Mandate in 1920. So there was, in the 1920s, increased competition from private-owned railways. So I think probably Lofty was trying to get in on that, that game, because there was, like, more private railways coming along in the 1920s. That makes sense. That seems yeah. very Monopoly of him, referring to the board game. Although it does seem like she, the Sheik was probably the um, brains in the operation. I Yeah, I would have to guess that that was the case. And the money, I think. Yes. Um. So in the next scene, Sheikh Khalil has pulled Sharon aside to speak to her and tell her to stop her nonsense and keep Miss Fisher out of their private business. Um, and he's wearing this burgundy suit that looks oh. so good. <laughs> it's, I love that suit. It. I, I didn't pick it as my favorite outfit, spoiler alert, but it is up there. It is a fantastic suit. It's so good. So good. It's probably what made Eleanor Lofthouse fall in love with him. She saw that suit and she thought, ugh, all Lofty ever wears is gross turtlenecks. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I he wants Miss Tiger rug in the scene. Just oh yeah, good stuff. Um, so he wants Sharon to take the ball seriously because being accepted accepted in London society is going to be essential for her safety. But she shows him the pendant to convince him that what he saw or what she saw was real in the desert. So she she tells him the story again. She went to collect the honey from the mountains. And I just, I side note, I'm certain that you can't just scoop honey out with a wooden spoon and no protective gear at all. I'm pretty sure you have to, like, remove the combs and then use this, like, spinning device to spin all the honey out of them. Anyway. Uh, but I did look it up, and there are honeybees that survive in the desert. And some are maintained by beekeepers in oases like Sharon's Village. And, interesting. Yeah. And there's evidence of wild population or of populations in the Sahara that have been isolated, like, no contact with other, like, species of bees for 5,000 years. Wow. Desert it's, bees. Yeah. I had no idea until I researched it for the show. Because I saw this and I was like, this isn't this isn't even close to realistic. How would they have honey? But there's bees in desert oases. <laughs> but you're right. I did look up a video about extracting honey and it is not anything like... Nothing. But, Nothing. but then maybe the beekeepers extracted the honey up on the hill and then, no. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> well, so anyway, up on the hilltop, suddenly dramatic music begins to play, which is how the villagers know that something bad is about to happen. <laughs> or is that just for us? Anyway, Sharin hears some gunshots and she just leaves that honey pot behind. Um, back at the village, everyone is dead and she can't find her mother. Just then a big sandstorm whips up um, and she says that's when the Moakibi found her. And he's the one that brought her to safety. Sheikh Khalil tells her not to tell anyone else and that he will get to the bottom of it. He clearly has been convinced by the pendant that her story was true. Also, it seems like maybe she had not told him the story in that much detail before. Because he's like crying at the end of it. Like, I, I just think he had been like, okay, okay. Like, maybe they had never really had a conversation about it. Yeah, that makes sense. They also haven't been reunited for very long, so. Yes. Um... And that, yeah, the end of our episode. Yeah, that brings us to the halfway point, and we will be picking it back up in part two with the ball. Oh, <laughs> can I just end the episode with some tidbits from the Maharaja of LR's obituary? Please do, by all means. There's an entire section dedicated to Donkey Beats Tiger <clears throat> on the occasion of his birthday, he stayed once. He staged a show in a specially constructed arena, brightly lit by electric light, which was intended to end in general slaughter. A tiger, a panther, a wild boar, a bull, a bear, and a donkey were all introduced into the arena at once. Ridiculous. <laughs> and the donkey won. The donkey won. Of course it did. I think it seems mostly by um, running, it knocked the tiger's face with its hooves and then galloped to the other end of the arena. Um Anyways, the donkey came out unscathed while the other animals attacked each other. And that is how the Maharaja of LR celebrated his birthday. One year. Anyways. Yeah. I mean, it's an admirable, strateg- or an admirable strategy that the donkey employed, which I wonder if the Maharaja took any of that, you know, to heart that you should just let your political opponents kill each other while you stay out of the fray. And then you'll just you'll be um, emerge victorious and unscathed. Yeah, maybe he did. It does sound like he was really bad at being a leader. Um, He proved inefficient and was often callous and even cruel in the treatment of his subjects and in his personal entourage. 
<laughs> Rude. <laughs> yeah. He was essentially a man of moods. On one and the same day, he might indulge in an orgy of religious mysticism and an orgy of self-indulgence. <laughs> Anyways. So, um, he would never take a move without consulting an astrologer. He was a fine athlete, a superlative polo player, an excellent shot, and a clever fisherman. Anyways, that is Franny Fisher's husband. <laughs> Sounds like, actually, I mean, that's, I think, what my obituary is going to sound like when they write it. <laughs> Is next year when you're staging the the donkey versus tiger at your birthday? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, okay, yeah, Seems yeah. Like a good way to celebrate 33. Mix it up with a mule. But <laughs> anyways, on that note, <laughs> until next time, listeners. Part two coming up. Do, 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 do. <laughs> Every lady needs a <laughs> Every lady needs a hobby. What does every lady need? A hobby. I say lady, you say hobby. I say need, you say hobby. <laughs> lady. Need. Hobby. Hobby. <laughs> okay.